Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. You know, I, I think one of the, the saddest things in life is not knowing who you are, what you're created for and what you have access to. I came across this headline recently. If we can whack that up, it'll be fantastic. It says, this homeless man who didn't know he was a millionaire is found dead before he could be told about his fortune. The body of, an, of heir to $300 million discovered frozen to death under a railway bridge. Timothy Henry Gray's body was discovered by children sledding under a Union Pacific Rail overpass in Wyoming. Gray, 60, was a long-lost relative of reclusive and eccentric New York heiress, Hugette Clark, who, and he stood to inherit $19 million of her $300 million fortune. How tragic is that? Imagine being homeless, having access to $19 million, and you're completely unaware of it. I actually think, as Christians, so many of us live our lives just like that. We're called to be sons and daughters of the King, We're called to be co-heirs with Christ. We're part of his kingdom, yet we live like tourists. When a tourist goes to a country, they go and see the important things, the special things, the highlights. There are websites, guidebooks, apps, all designed to maximise your experience given your budget and your time constraints. When I travel... I, I love to see things. I love to go and, and look at the, the, the landmarks and the important stuff in, in a city, but I actually don't like being a tourist. I don't, I don't know what it is about being a tourist, but something inside me reacts to it. When, when Kira and I were living in New Zealand, every Christmas we'd come and visit her family over here, and, and invariably at some point we'd, we'd go into the city or we'd go and see something, and, and I loved doing all that, but I hated carrying a camera that the camera was the giveaway that you're a tourist. And I just reacted really badly. That's something inside me was like, I, I refuse to carry a camera. I don't care if I get no photos. I am not, I am not looking like a tourist. It was a, a little bit hard when uh, I went to India last year to, to kind of blend in. Um, but there's just anyone else like that, you, just, you don't like looking like a tourist? Or is it just me? Oh, a few, a few people, just me. Okay, thanks, guys. You're such a supportive, encouraging church. It's fantastic. When I was preparing my message this week, I began reflecting on that idea that there's something in me hates being a tourist. And, and I, as I was doing that and, and praying through it, I felt God drop a word in my spirit. And it was this. Some people treat this Christian life like they're tourists. They may do the big things, attend church, go to the odd conference, Maybe even read the Bible sometimes, buy a great worship album or occasional Christian book. And I felt very strongly to tell you this morning, you're not created to be a tourist. You're created to be a resident. You weren't made to visit the kingdom of God. You're made to live here, to dwell here, to be a resident here. What does it mean to be a tourist? A tourist, well, they have few responsibilities, few obligations. Sure, they have to obey the laws of the land, but they don't have to contribute to the betterment of it. One of the biggest issues in, in, in tourism in New Zealand at the moment is that a, a lot of overseas drivers are being involved in accidents. And uh, sure, they, they can drive, but the New Zealand road conditions are very different to many parts of the world. Our weather's different. 
and for a lot of people, driving on the wrong side of the road is an issue, and it often ends in tragic circumstances. Tourists, they operate on their own agenda. They choose what to participate in and and what to miss out on or, or be part of. What does it mean to be a resident? A resident is part of society. A resident has rights and responsibilities. A resident pays taxes. A resident has access to support when things don't work out. A resident embodies the values of the nation, or at least they're held accountable to them. Basically, a resident chooses to participate in the society that they live in. I feel an incredible amount of frustration when I meet people who claim to be Christians, yet their lives tell me a whole different story. We say we're part of this kingdom of God, that that we love God and we we can come to church every Sunday. But for the rest of the week, we don't give God a second thought. That really does frustrate me. You know, I've said it here before, I'm sure. Coming to church every Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than visiting McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Sleeping in a garage does not make you a car. It's, It's more than just... Attending, I've used this diagram here before. If we could put the, the next slide up, that'd be fantastic. We, we treat, our, I hope you can see that. We, we treat our lives like this. We, we segment things. We, we put them into their, their pockets. We've got our education, our recreation, social life, work, family, whatever it is. And then we've got our God piece of the pie. And we feel like we're doing well when we're growing our God piece. And we feel like we're doing poorly when we're shrinking our God piece, when we're just trying to fit it in. So many Christians live their lives just like this. If we could put the, the next one up, that'd be fantastic. But this is the plan of God. He, it is all the pie. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. For in Him, we live and move and exist. We weren't designed to have God in a segment. We weren't designed to grow this God box. God wants to be involved in every area of our lives. So we ask, how do we do God life in the midst of our education, our employment, our family life, recreation? What does it look like to live the kingdom of God in every aspect of our life? If you were to read our mission statement, it says, leading people to become fully committed followers the ways of Jesus Christ. But the language there was very intentional. We're not setting out to make Christians, setting out to make followers the ways of Jesus. One of those is a label. The other is a lifestyle choice. Kingdom of God has been described as the rule and reign of Christ. It's where the order and the authority of God exists. It's basically wherever God is in charge, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in His kingdom, then the authority of God should be evident in your life. means we're choosing to live life His way. We're on the path of transformation. We're not like everyone else. We're supposed to be different. Book of Matthew puts it this way. It says you'll recognise them by their fruits. We'll recognise the, the people that are claiming to be Christians and those that actually are Christian by evidence by their life, by what's happening. Are we seeing the fruit of transformation in your lives? Are, are, are you becoming more like God, thinking more like God, displaying, displaying the, the God characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Are those growing in increasing measures in your life? That's evidence of the transformed life. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus, he's come from uh, the, the, the 
desert and his trials and the temptations there. He's been baptised and he makes a declaration. He says, turn from your sins. Turn to God because the kingdom of God is near. In John 17, a prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples is recorded and this is what it says. Verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but you would protect them from the evil one. In in John 15, 14, he says it like this. If you belong to the world, it would have loved you like its own. As it is, you do not belong to this world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you're called to live in this world, but not part of this world. We're part of his kingdom. If you're in here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to, to explore what this life of faith could look like. But what we're talking about this morning, to discover this, this God that loves you and cares about you. Today I want to talk about that idea of in, not from. There are two thoughts that I want you to get from today. One, we're in this world, we're not from this world. Secondly, that God doesn't always deliver us from the fire, sometimes He delivers us in the fire. This year, we've been talking about the relentless pursuit of God, a God that that pursued a, a, a people, that wanted relationship with us so much that He called this group of people to become part of his family. And as the the Old Testament, as we've kind of been walking our way through the Old Testament, there's a transition that's taking place from God pursuing individuals to pursuing a family. And now that the the family idea that Israel has been established and he's God of a people, he's now pursuing individuals that will choose to pursue him. When people make a choice to follow God and allow him to be in charge of their lives, to do it His way, that when we're beginning that pursuit of Him, He chooses to use us. Don't miss the significance of that. When we choose God, He chooses us. There's a verse that says, many are called, but few are chosen. The invite from God is, will you choose to pursue Him? Will you choose Him today? The story of Daniel is so fantastic. It's a story that so many of us no, well, we're going to uh, look at uh, the story in, in Daniel today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 3 as I kind of begin to unpack the background. Daniel was a Jewish man. We, we don't know a whole lot about his, his history up until he appears in the Bible, but we know that he was either from a royal family or one of the, the, the leading families in Israel. We know that, that he was a good-looking man. We know that he was very intelligent, had a capacity to learn. Uh, we know that he was taken captive by Babylon. Babylon was the dominant nation of the day. And uh, the, the capital city in Babylon was um, a, a city that's about 55 kilometres south of what we would today call Baghdad. That's the location of where the, the centre of their power resided. There's a king at the day called King Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon's the the dominant force. And when they conquered a people, as you do when you come in and take over a city or cities, you've got to decide what to do with the people that uh, aren't killed. And every every, um, 
conquering force has to come to grips with how they're going to do that and, and many forces have different, different ways. Some would try and wipe every one of them out so that there was no one left to rebel later. But the way the Babylonians went about it, they would make life so good and so comfortable and it would be so much better than what you'd experience that you would never ask, we want to go back to what we had. Why would we leave this? It's so good. Bible scholars often talk about Babylon being representative of the world around us, the culture that we live in. Why would we choose to do this Christian thing? Life is so good. It's so good how we've got it. Why would we go that path? Why would we make that choice? You know, statistics around Australia at the moment from, from census suggest that the growth in the church in Australia is not by white Australians, it's by immigrants. The church has lost touch with middle Australia because we've preached this message for so long that if you come to church, if you, if you come to God, life will be better. You'll, you'll be happy, life will be good. It's, everything will be great for you. And we preach that message for so long trying to, to, to drag people in with this message of it's just gonna be all good. God will make it all better. The reality is, if my life is good already, if it's comfortable, if it's happy, why, why do I need to bolt this God thing on? I've already got everything I need. I'm quite happy with my life. Thank you very much. And the growth in church in Australia amongst Australians tends to be those that have had a really rough journey, a brokenness or things have gone wrong. I think somewhere along the line, we've missed the power of the true message of the gospel. If you're in Daniel chapter three, today we're gonna talk about a particular story. See, because Christianity is a choice. If you boil it down, it's a choice in so many ways between the image and the fire. The stage is set. There's a self-inflated king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he builds this image Statue, 90 feet high, nine feet wide. That's a pretty significant thing. You know, the world operates on the principle of image. We're bombarded with images through television, through media, through social networks, our computers. Even when you go to the movies, you're bombarded with images, products that are placed to catch your attention, even if you aren't aware that they're there. I've grabbed a few from... from uh, some movies that you might recognise. Marty McFly discovering a pair of Nikes. There we go, that's house. Apple computer place there, there we go. Bit of Bond action with a Sony Vio. This stuff is happening in movies constantly, all the time. And we, we don't even realise the images that, that we're taking on board constantly. There's absolutely no accident. The placement of stuff, Coke paid a lot of money for that right. And there we go, one of the best movies of all time. Because in Wayne's world, they actually mock that whole idea. They're just constantly placing products. We are constantly being bombarded with images. The world is obsessed with image. We're told we need to look a certain way, dress a certain way, drive the right kind of car, live in the right kind of house. It's been said that we spend money that's not ours to buy things that we don't need to impress people we don't even like. I remember being... Very aware of this at my first Mufti day at high school. Some of you might be feeling the pain that I was feeling, 
that day. We, we'd shifted from Dunedin to Christchurch and, and it was in a, a new a high school. It was term three, so I, I knew nobody at school literally on day one. And, and I, at my old school, I kind of knew everybody. And the school I went to was a, a public boys' school. At the time, it was rated the number one public school in, in New Zealand. Had a really high reputation for sport and for academic and cultural stuff. It was, it was a great school, except it was in a really affluent part of the city. And, and because of uh, Dad being relocated with work, we'd ended up in, in zone for the school. I went to the school, and, and then Mufti Day arrived. And I showed up in the clothes that I, I normally wore. And, and I remember kids laughing at me. I remember the comments. I remember looking at what everyone else was wearing and, and feeling shame. I remember thinking like I had to look a certain way to fit in with these people. What a tragic thing for a 13-year-old boy to experience. But life keeps throwing up these images of what it's supposed to be like, what we're supposed to to obtain. So let's get into Daniel chapter 3. I'll, I'll read a few verses and then we'll, we'll, we'll pick out what we've learned from that. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. So that's 90 feet by 9 feet. And set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. The guy in today's story makes a huge image. It's pervasive. It's persuasive. It's there on the plains of Babylon in a place called Jura. That word Jura literally means a wall. Satan, the enemy in the story, has been referred to as a type of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when I talk about the Bible, often they're using the stories in the Bible to give us an image and an illustration of something else. Babylon, as I said, has been referred to as an image of the culture of the day. Nebuchadnezzar is an image of this person called Satan, this angel. And he wants his image to bombard your world. He wants to set up a wall between you and the kingdom of God. His plan is to create a separation, to stop you from stepping into all that God has for you, to put a wall there between you and the plans of God in your life, between you and the hope that there is in God, between you and the miracle of of God's Word. He wants to set up an opposition to stop you from seeing it. And He creates this image. So all the people are gathered. As it says in verse 3, so the satraps, Prefects, the governors, the advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. See, Satan understands the power of worship. And he's trying to reorient worship. All of us worship. Some of us just worship different things. See, Satan, the Bible, when it talks about him, he was the, the head angel. He was powerful. It talks about him being adorned in, in, in many jewels. He was at the top of the chain. 
He was so powerful and influential that, that when he's kicked out of heaven, a third of all angels decided to follow him. He wasn't happy being number two. You see, he was full of pride. He wanted to be God, not to worship God. The dictionary describes worship as an extravagant respect or admiration to something. There's three dangerous acts of worship in this story that I want us to draw out this morning briefly. Three things that if we're not careful, if we worship them, if if we give them, as it says, extravagant respect or admiration, extravagant admiration, are actually destructive in our lives because Satan's trying to redirect our worship away from God to the image. And it says, firstly, that the image was made of gold. The world spends an incredible amount of its resources to drag your time and attention. And money can become an idol for us. We can worship the power of money. We can be seeking to get more of it to to drive better cars, have better houses, better clothes, better holidays because we wanna be comfortable and we we wanna be happy. We think that money's gonna bring us happiness and we seek that out. We're searching it out. The way to break the power of money in your life is a little thing by the name of generosity. See, if money has become an issue in your life, and, and I'll give you a heads up how you might know that it's become an issue for you this morning. You're getting grumpy that I'm talking about it. The very fact that I've mentioned the word generosity, something inside you is going, that might be a little clue to you this morning that you've got an issue in this area. See, generosity breaks the power of money in our lives. Why don't you find something, if this is an issue for you, that you can go, you know what, that's a cause I should get behind. Maybe it's one of our community programs. There's some great charities around that do incredible work. Why don't you determine that this is an area that you struggle with to become a generous person, to put your resource where it's gonna make a difference. The second thing it says here is the image was of the king. The king had set up an image of himself, 90 feet high, nine feet wide. That's a pretty substantial image. We've gotta be really careful about self-worship, about putting ourselves at the centre of the universe, about living our lives thinking only of ourselves. Little word selfishness is at the heart of all that. And so many people I reckon live their lives like you're the centre of the universe. The way I reckon you break the power of that one in your life, there's another dirty little word called service. We get involved, we contribute. We take on roles that, that don't elevate us, but maybe we look for the job that no one else will do and we do that. We look for the thing that might not bring us the glory and the recognition that we so desperately crave, but actually can make a difference. It says here, thirdly, that the people were told to worship the king, to bow down to the king. As the story unfolds, they choose to do that. I reckon another destructive way of worship in our life is a celebrity culture. We elevate people for the strangest reasons. And we just wanna be like them or be around them. And and I'm sick of seeing on TV, and and sorry if you've done this, but I'm sick of it, of, of particularly teenage girls bursting into tears just because the superstar has suddenly arrived that you've queued for hours and hours and hours to catch a, just a, a glimpse of One Direction, who, by the way, are breaking up. <laughs> what a great outcome that is. Two, two directions or 0.8 directions. Yeah. 
I'm sorry if you love One Direction. I, I, had, a, I had a moment in my life where I, I, and I was singing along to a song, going, that's really good, who's that? And Kerry goes, that's One Direction. And I was like, I repented on the spot. It's like, Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm coming back to you. You know how we break the power of celebrity culture? We actually choose someone whose life is worth emulating. We look at people in history or people in our world that have done something significant, whose lives have made a difference. Maybe we look at Mother Teresa and go, what, what did she do? And, and, and we start to, to look at some of the things that she did in our life and make a choice. But we're going to build those into our lives. It says it's a global battle. It said every nation, every language, Satan wants it all. He wants you to bow down. He wants you to focus on the wrong things because he knows the power of worship. And if he can just drag your attention somewhere else away from God, he knows he's won the battle. Then Daniel chapter three and and verse seven, that the story begins to unfold. The music starts. And it says that whenever you hear those instruments or all kinds of music, you gotta bow down. You see, Satan uses all kinds of music. Like country, and country, country and western, and country, all of well, western, western, Kylie, la la la, la 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 la, can't think of words, so I'll sing la 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 la. All kinds of me, sorry, I'm. <clears throat> Music is powerful. It's emotive. It can bring us to tears. It can make us angry. It can shift our thinking. It changes our perception of something when you suddenly add music to it. That's why I surround my life with worship music. I love listening to songs on the radio and I do a lot, but I choose to listen to worship when I want to bring focus to my spiritual life. When I want to, when I feel like I want to pray or if I'm, if I'm preparing messages, if I, if I just, if I want peace in my life, play worship music because it's a powerful thing. The three heroes of our story appear, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as I like to call them, Shadrach, Rufrak, and Bulbar. Or perhaps, shake the bed, make the bed, and what? And into bed you go. That's shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. Uh, Big Mac fries, uh, Big Mac chips and a drink to go. Um, These three guys, they show up and everyone else, the music plays and and people bow down all over the place. And these three, they're standing, refuse to bow down. And the other officials, because these these guys were appointed to positions of responsibility, they run up to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, you won't believe it, there's these three Jews. And they won't bow down. They refused to the music played and they stood there. They were the only ones that refused to bow the knee. And I think this sort of thing's gonna happen more and more. There's a specific agenda against the church to accuse us of intolerance. Intolerance is something that's been set up as really bad. So when we're intolerant, we don't look good. This point, many... Churches, Christians and leaders throw in the towel, bow the knee and go, oh, we don't want to be intolerant. All the rules are gone. But I reckon the question we honestly need to grapple with is this. Are we being intolerant or scriptural? Because I think think sometimes actually as church, big C, not just us, but the church, we have been intolerant 
incredibly intolerant over the years. Let me point something out to you for free this morning, that the majority of the New Testament was written to Christians, to church leaders and churches. It wasn't given to us as a manual for bashing people who don't follow us and our beliefs over the head with. Most of it was not designed as a, you've got to do this or you're going to burn in hell. It was designed to encourage those followers of Jesus Christ, this is how you should live your life. This is what will set you apart. I remember at one stage I was applying for a, a role in, in, uh, as manager of a youth work agency I was part of. And, and in the interview, they asked this question. They said, you're a Christian, but this, this agency works with all sorts of people from every walk of life. How are you going to handle it when someone comes to you that doesn't believe what you believe, that isn't a Christian? And my response to that, got a round of applause from them actually, it's basically I've chosen to live my life by the Bible, the standards of Jesus Christ and what he teaches me in this. I've chosen that this is the way I want to do my life. If someone else hasn't chosen that, what right do I have to impose my beliefs on them? Because let's be honest, when someone else tries to impose their beliefs on us, don't we get angry? Don't we react badly to that? The legal system in Australia is increasingly shifting away from church-centric. Many people are, are really concerned about that. I'm not actually as concerned about that as most people are. Because when I looked at first century Rome, when this whole Christian thing kicked off, Nothing was church-centric. In fact, the Christians were so completely different to the culture and society of the day that they were not only accused, they were killed, they were tortured, they were beaten, they were persecuted like you wouldn't believe. I've read stories of, of accounts of what they put Christians through. In first century Rome with the gladiator kind of culture, you can imagine for a moment, if you've seen any of those kind of movies, what these guys went through. But it didn't cause the church to stop. In fact, it caused it to explode because everywhere the early church was persecuted, if they relocated somewhere else, they took the good news with them. They talked about Jesus wherever they went. That Christianity exploded in opposition to the culture, not by having everything set up for them. There's a guy by the name of Tertullian. Sorry, He was a Christian apologist. He's a former pagan. And he wrote to the leaders of Rome in AD 197 and he said this. The more Christians were mown down by you, the more we grew in number. The blood of Christians is seed. Sometimes I think we take a stand on the wrong stuff. We're more known for what we're against than what we're for. We speak a message of opposition, not a message of hope. Sometimes I think we do stand up when no one else will and it's the right thing to do. Christians were at the centre of the anti-slavery movement. Christians have been at the centre of a lot of social revolution stuff, which is absolutely incredible. In the first century, Christians were known for caring for the widows, the sick, the poor. They looked after people. It was so completely different to the culture of the day. They were known because they were different. And if we want to choose the fire and not the image, we must be set apart from others. We must make a decision that we're not going to follow everyone else. There's a conflict between two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world that's temporal, that's seductive, the image that is empty, or the kingdom that is powerful. It's eternal and it has a fire that is full. Your life is about which kingdom you choose. There's this guy by the name of Elijah and he's 
working with the, the, he's a prophet, he's working with the people of Israel at the time who are faced with a, a similar choice about which, which God they're going to follow and which way they're going to go. And he's standing there and he says these words, how long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. How long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you have one foot in one camp, one foot in the other camp? Because whenever we have our feet divided, we're going to stumble. We're going to falter because we can't run straight. We can't pursue the path of God. We can't follow him and his plans for your life when we're divided. We need to make a decision to be like the three amigos and pay no attention to the image. Shadrach, Rufrak, Bulbars, that already made their decision. That already set their life on course. You see, the beginning of the story, it, it describes what happened to them when they came into Babylon. They were put with a whole lot of other people from other nations and, and they were to be educated for three years. They were the best and the brightest and they were to, to learn the literature and the science and, and, and all the, the education of the Babylonian system and, and they were to be fed the food and the wine from the king's table. Life was to look great for these guys. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused the food. They refused the wine. They decided that they wanted vegetables and water instead. And they said, test us, give us this stuff. And if we don't do better than everybody else, then you'll know that we're wrong. But look at, give us a chance. They'd already made a decision. That yeah, they were gonna understand and learn about the culture and the society that they were in, but they weren't gonna be part of it. We need to determine our standards before we're in the heat of the moment. It's too late when you get to that, that moment and there's some money there and you think, you know what, I could take this money and no one will know, it's too late. I've got to decide before I get in that pressure and that temptation of the moment, what the standards of my life are gonna be like, what's acceptable for me and not. When we're dating and we're with that person, oh, we're so happy and excited. We're gonna decide the heat of the moment before the heat of the moment when it's just the two of us and the moods, you know, lights are dim and the candles. We have to have decided what our standard for life is going to be before we're in the moment. These guys had already decided. They'd already determined what life was going to look like. They'd seen the statue being built. They would have known what was coming. They had decided already who they were. Let me read you some verses from chapter 13. No, chapter 3, verse 13. It says this. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So the men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that you will not, do you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Man, those are some fighting words right there. You'll either do it or you're gonna burn and no God will be able to save you. I, I learn a couple of things from that. If Satan is a, a type of the king, if he's a representation of Nebuchadnezzar, then he wants you to believe the lie that God can't help you. You're on your own. If you don't choose to do it his way, if you choose to pursue this, this kingdom life, if you choose to pursue the fire, you're on your own. God can't help you. No matter what problems come your way, you're on your own. He wants you to buy into that light that you don't stand a chance. And the second thing I learned about that, the problem of temptation and compromise and sin is it seldom comes around once. They'd already been in that place and refused to bow the knee and now here before the king again, 
They've, they're given a second chance to kind of decide if they're really committed to this. I reckon we, we face temptation, compromise more than once. But listen to these words of faith. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We don't need to defend ourselves to justify ourselves in this matter. It's not worth our time and our attention when it comes to this choice. Our life has already declared by our actions that we've chosen. And then they ramp it up. God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. They choose the fire. And the king says he makes the furnace seven times hotter. He really ramps it up. He gets the strongest men in the army and he he gets them the soldiers to bind these guys and drag them towards the furnace or take them to the furnace. And the furnace now seven times hotter. It's so hot that these guys, the soldiers taking them into the the furnace die because of the heat. And the three of them fall into the furnace. They're there, the fire's ranking. And and what I I worked out from that is that if Satan can't cause you to compromise, he'll try and destroy you. He'll try and end your faith. End the, the, he'll throw problems and opposition at you. He'll do everything he can to destroy you in that moment. Verse 24 and 25 says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. He asked his, his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of God. So often, I reckon... We pray for God to save us from the fire when sometimes He actually wants to save us in the fire. Pray, God, this is too hard. I've chosen you and things have suddenly come against me. I've gone to Bible college and now I've got no money or or God, I, I, I wanted to be faithful and do this and look what's happened around me. God, save me from this. And God can and does save us from that. But sometimes... He wants to save us in the fire, not from the fire. Because in the fire, certain things take place. Fire has a purpose. It brings purity. It brings strength. That The rubbish or the dross is consumed. It's shaping and moulding. God wants to shape your life. He wants to mould you. He wants to remove the rubbish from your life. He wants to purify us. He wants us to live this God-centred life by choosing the fire and not the image. Worship team can come join me. I'm done. Daniel chapter 3, verse 28 and 29 says this. The king asked Daniel, also called Balthazar, they changed his name. No, that's the wrong verse. We'll go that way. Talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar then approached and said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is verse 28. Who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, defied the king's commands, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their house be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Choosing the fire led to a spiritual revolution. Unless we live as residents of God's kingdom, how will people know that we're different? If we don't live our lives as residents, we're just tourists, we look like everybody else. 
choose the image. We choose the image. But we're called to live as residents. Choose the fire to stand against popular culture, to stand against things that we know are in opposition to God and say, I will not compromise. I will not bow the knee. I will not give my worship to anything other than God. Called to choose the fire. And here's the challenge for us this week. Look at your life. Pick an area where perhaps you've compromised. We've chosen the image. Make a decision today not to compromise anymore. But in this area, I'm choosing the fire. I'm gonna choose to pursue God. I'm gonna make Him the centre of my world, not an add-on to my world. Decide what the standard for your life will be from now on. It's God's encouraging us this morning not to be a tourist with this Christian life, to live as part of His kingdom. And in a few weeks' time, we're going to begin to explore what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, what Jesus said about the kingdom, what this kingdom life looks like. We're called to be residents and not tourists, to choose the fire and not the image. God, thank you that we can live this kingdom life. Thank you that you've called us give our lives to you, to place it in your hands, to choose you because you've relentlessly pursued us. God, I pray for those in this room that perhaps have been living like tourists here and there, compromised, is choosing follow the wrong things. God, that we would strong enough to choose the fire this morning you, to put you at the centre of our lives. Think of you first. To proclaim you as King and Lord. We love you, Lord. God, we choose to worship you this morning. Choose to worship you today. We're going to stand to our feet now. Why don't we worship God this morning as we sing this final song. Lift His name up. To put Him at the centre. To choose the fire and not the image. To choose to be a resident and not a tourist. Worship you, God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www cofcpenrith.org That's www.cofcpenrith.org